0: Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, a podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris. A deal has finally been struck. After two years of deadlock, Northern Ireland's political parties have settled on a new power-sharing arrangement. A storm set to return, ministers are going to be back in post, and the civil servants who have been running things can take a well-earned rest. So what has been agreed? Did someone have to blink first? And what does a Sinn Féin first minister mean for the future of Northern Ireland will be reflecting on a historic week in Belfast? And from one deal to another, four years ago this week, the UK formally left the EU after MPs voted to back Boris Johnson's withdrawal agreement. But how have things worked out and could Brexit yet end up being an issue at the next general election? And then we'll take a look at the question of transparency. Because in recent years, the government has seemed to be rather more interested in covering up than opening up. Think of party game, pandemic procurement and ministerial use of WhatsApp. But is transparency actually good for government or just an onerous lot of work for officials and ministers a new IFG report makes our case? Joining me today to discuss all of this is IFG Senior Fellow and Brexit Watcher-in-Chief Jill Rutter. Hi, Jill. Hi, Emma. And we're joined again by Tim Durrant, who leads our Minister's Work Programme. Hi, Tim. Hi, Emma. Great to be here. I'm delighted that we're joined today by Peter Foster, Public Policy Editor at the Financial Times. Great to see you again, Peter.
1: Well, thanks, Emma. Hi.
0: Okay, so let's start with the historic developments in Northern Ireland this week. Late night drama, party brinkmanship, a bit of Brexit, £3 billion, it was all going on. Let's get into the deal that's been struck. Does it address the DUP concerns about the operation of the Windsor framework or is it a bit of a a fig leaf for uh, the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson?
1: Well, it does objectively address their concerns because Geoffrey Donaldson's decided to go back into power sharing. I think you can see how limited... The command paper is by the fact that the uh, British government hasn't negotiated it through or via Brussels and didn't run it past Brussels. There are bits and pieces in the deal. They've expanded that green lane. Uh, They say they want to get 80% of goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, essentially in there with very minimal checks once you've joined the Trusted Trader Scheme. Mm -hmm. That means, of course, that there's still more paperwork to send something to Belfast than to Birmingham. But the argument among the officials is that there are already 7,000 companies in that trusted trader scheme. So the bulk of that work is essentially done. I think then there's also a lot of constitutional reassurance to the DUP that um, Northern Ireland is a treasured and important part of the United Kingdom. There's various bodies. There's a new East-West Council, an inter-trade body to promote links between the two. And one or two quite interesting bits of legislation, a piece of legislation to uh, uh, make future governments uh, include Northern Ireland in any treaties that the UK might sign. Of course, you have to remember that when the UK uh, did its trade deals, for example, with Australia and New Zealand, Northern Ireland being in the EU single market because wasn't – or I should correct that and say Northern Ireland having – dual access to the EU single market because Northern Ireland until this week didn't have access to, for example, the beef quotas. Uh, And there's been a fix on that too, which is slightly uh, in parallel to the uh, uh, command paper that you referred to. But again, allows Geoffrey Donald to say, look, Northern Ireland is a fully fledged member of the UK internal market, able to take advantage of those super sore away uh, trade deals that we've done since Brexit. Um, You know, yes, it's a bit of Window dressing, you know, but but actually, job done. You know, the fundamental change happened with the Windsor Framework that allowed UK standards to apply to goods as long as they were labelled not for EU uh, uh, when they went from um, uh, uh, Great Britain into Northern Ireland. And the government's put its mouth behind, put its money behind that by saying that all EU goods need to be labelled not for EU, all over the United Kingdom. So not just when you send something to Northern Ireland, but all across the UK to say that there's no risk of discrimination, no risk of company going, you know what, I can't be bothered to relabel my stuff to send it to Northern Ireland. The labels are going to apply all across the um, UK. So you add all that together, and you get a big package of reassurance, not to mention 3.3 billion pounds, Uh, And, um, you know, we've reached a point, I think, of political exhaustion, local elections looming, and you add all that together and um, we're back in business in Stormont.
0: And let's just uh, talk about that, that three billion figure. Jill, it sounds like a a very good deal.
2: Well, I think it's quite interesting to suggest that, you know, it's largely about sort of stabilising public service in Northern Ireland, enabling Northern Ireland to... uh, do pay deals with the public sector who haven't had a pay rise uh, and sort out some of the more underlying problems. I mean, 3.3 billion is quite a lot in England money. In Northern Ireland money, remember, Northern Ireland is really quite small. It's actually a huge amount of money. But I think it also shows the sort of strain in which the budget has been operating under Northern Ireland, that that sort of money has been held back till now. Um, My general rule is to multiply through by 30 to get the England equivalent. Uh, that's a very rough rule of thumb. So that's really quite serious money. So that's 90 billion. It's not all in one year. It's Some of them are one-offs. Uh, so the really interesting thing is, where does this put the Northern Ireland budget long-term? And the even more interesting thing is, do we get back an executive that's willing to take some of the longer-term decisions that are needed, both on the spending and the revenue side, to put Northern Ireland on a sound financial basis going forward? We know that successive Northern Ireland executives... Have not come up with coherent programmes for government. That was a requirement the last time they went back under the new decade, new approach that was brokered in January 2020. They usually give the health ministry to a smaller party. It was an Ulster Unionist who uh, got that short straw last time because they know that there are hugely difficult decisions to come on hospital rationalisation, which is even harder in Northern Ireland than it is uh, here. So I think the really interesting thing is, you know, Northern Ireland's got a government back. But will it have a good functioning, effective government back? And I think the sort of biggest hope is that Michelle O'Neill, as the first uh, nationalist First Minister, will want to show that actually other non nationalist Northern Ireland citizens have nothing to fear from being governed by Sinn Fein. And the DUP will want to show that Northern Ireland can flourish inside the union. And together, they could come together and govern Northern Ireland well for their different political ends. But that's not really been the history of governance in Northern Ireland so far. It's quite fragile. It's nothing on institutional reform in this agreement. And one of the things that's really interesting about the command paper is that it reads like A couple that have broken up, had a really bad breakup, decide to sort of give it another go. But, you know, one of them really doesn't trust the bigger, more powerful party not to ignore them, not to throw them under a bus again. So there are institutions coming out of your ears, oversight mechanisms, putting what were sort of commitments on paper into law. So it's quite odd.
0: Peter, as Jill nodded to, there's going to be a Sinn Féin First Minister for the first time. How significant is that?
1: Well, hugely. Uh, although, you know, as a point of fact, the the uh, First Ministers are co-equals uh, under the thing. It's only that, um, you know, over the years it's become, you know, as if the First Minister is you know, primus to Paris, but actually, you know, they are co-equals and they have to govern co As as Jill said at the start. That's why we haven't had uh, an executive up the last two years. Nonetheless, there's no denying that now that Sinn Féin are the largest party, it is an historic moment, I think, to see a, a Sinn Féin first minister sworn in and to see the DUP working with them. It won't be easy, but, you know, Brexit has polarised Northern Ireland's politics, as indeed um, John Major and Tony Blair warned that it would back on the peace bridge in Derry, London Derry, uh, all that time ago before the referendum. I'm afraid the British government, um, in its handling of the, um, not this British government, but over the over the course of the negotiation, has done nothing to um, uh, 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 help Northern Ireland get through the inevitable um Constitutional issues that arise from essentially a decision that explodes the constitutional ambiguity at the heart of the Good Friday Agreement that allows nationalists to live uh, uh, in a notional island, as it were, and uh, unionists to live in the in you know to live their parallel realities. And so, yeah, it's a big moment. Of course, it's a big moment, and um, none of this resolves the really fundamental tension, which is how um, political unionism deals with the situation it finds itself in, given that the union holds from the centre. You know, hardline nationalists will vote for unification, hardline unionists will always vote for the union, but the union is held in the centre. And right now, you know, Brexit and the handling of the Brexit negotiation has driven political unionism into something of a cul-de-sac. And it's not clear how it escapes that.
0: Tim, we've talked about the fact that ministers are are returning um, for for the first time in some time. You lead our ministers' work here at IFG. What kind of challenges uh, do new ministers face when going into or rather coming back to
3: government? I mean, I think there are the challenges that new ministers face, which we've talked about a lot so it's incredibly difficult understanding how a government works from the outside you don't get the information on where the budgets are at as jill alluded to we know that sort of public services in northern ireland have been struggling during this period without that political leadership we know that the civil service have been pausing a lot of decisions so there's going to be a sort of big backlog of things that the new ministers need to work with uh, and work through and, and take on but the other thing i think is quite interesting about this uh, formation and i, I don't think we've actually seen the full uh, lineup of the ministers yet in the in the Northern Ireland Executive. But reading some briefing around it suggests that because of the way the parties, the arithmetic in the Assembly changed at the last election, the Alliance Party might have some more ministers uh, than they've ever had before. They had they've previously had uh, Naomi Long as Justice Minister in the um, previous um, Assembly government, but actually you've got new MLAs who've never been a ministers before who are going to be taking on this role for the first time. And I think it'd be really interesting seeing sort of how they get up to speed with um, their portfolios understand what the civil service have been doing and how they transition from being elected representatives through to being decision makers because suddenly all the pressure is on you you've got to you've got to answer for what the government is doing uh, and for those alliance members uh, a lot of them won't have done this at all before um, the other side of that coin is um, in the previous setup the SDLP the smaller uh, nationalist party were in government this time they're going to go into opposition and it'll be interesting to see how they play it as well will they be sort of very critical of this government how will they approach that as as jill said there are sort of reasons for all the different groups within northern ireland and across the whole of the uk and ireland i think for, to want this government to succeed um but as an opposition they obviously you know they have a role to play in sort of holding them to account scrutinizing them trying to point out where things are going badly so it's, it's It's a big challenge for the new ministers, but it's also the whole kind of political configuration has changed. Mm
0: -hmm. And Peter, I want to talk a a bit about institutions as well. Do you think that this episode suggests that the Good Friday Agreement institutions need another look?
1: Well, you know, I think it's easy to say that hypothetically they do. You know, we've seen um, consistently that the way the system works at the moment allows one side or the other to hold the entire thing to ransom. I'm not sure Real, it's realistic. I mean, Jill will have views on this. It's honestly realistic politically um, to – I mean, people talk about it in the hypothetical, in the abstract, and there is clearly logical arguments for re-looking at the way the institutions operate politically. I can't see it happening.
2: Jill? Now, you would like to be in a position where you – have governments even if, even if one of the major parties doesn't want to be part of them. That would be quite helpful. It's quite good, I think, that there may be a bit more of a political opposition because there's been a notable lack of scrutiny. The Northern Ireland Affairs Committee produced a report a few weeks ago suggesting some changes, one of which would be that at the very least the Assembly could function even if there wasn't an executive, so you could get a bit of oversight there and things like that. I think this is probably not the moment to reopen all of this. But at some point, I think there is quite a lot of stirrings in Northern Ireland itself to say, actually, do we need to start rethinking those arrangements that were we'll put in place? We do tweak them. So we've tweaked them over the years through successions of agreements. But is there time to have another look? But this is probably not the week to be doing it. What's important now is to get the government, get those portfolios allocated and, uh, and get some decisions being made. I think your intro, Emma, you said civil servants could take a bit of a holiday. I think actually they ought to be getting ready to uh, get these ministers to make loads and loads of the decisions that have been waiting around for far too long. So I think they should be going into overdrive.
0: Thanks, Jill. We'll, We'll be continuing to talk about Northern Ireland on podcasts in the weeks to come. now we're going to talk a bit more about Brexit. So this week marks four years since the UK formally left the EU. And now the government's finally decided to go ahead with imposing proper border controls, meaning EU businesses will have to have their first taste of what uh, GB businesses have been putting up with since 2021. Uh, Peter, what's happening this year?
1: You uh, or your listeners may remember that once we left the EU single market, all of our businesses faced the full panoply of checks at the border, sending stuff from uh, Great Britain into the EU. But going the other way, all those EU exporters, they got a free pass, essentially. They weren't filling out these long 50-field export health certificates, attestations on the underlying provenance of the cheese and their cheese and onion crisps, although I'm not not sure that um, they make much cheese and onion crisps on the continent. But anyway, (laughs) um, as of uh, uh, this week, Um, we are starting to finally impose a border in the other direction. And that means um, from January, uh, products of plant and animal origin have to have an export health certificate. Wet stamped by a vet in uh, the country uh, that the uh, product was sent from. That means a real vet, a real human being stamping a piece of paper. And then from the end of April, there will be physical inspections on a very small proportion, but physical inspections at, at border control posts in UK ports when stuff lands. Um, And then from October, they will be adding safety and security declarations. That's something really more for hauliers, but another layer of bureaucracy on all goods traveling from EU into GB. And of course, what we saw last time in 2021, when that happened to the uh, British side, was lots of people, particularly smaller traders, they gave up. And what we really don't know is how European traders will respond to the new paperwork. Uh, there's quite a lot of evidence talking to the trade groups that the levels of awareness on the EU side are quite low uh, about this. And of course, you know those who do export often they're putting whole container loads onto a slow boat to China as it were. But this very high frequency complex just in time supply chain where shelf life is all important, it will come under strain I think from requiring German, Italian and other vets who really aren't set up for this. To suddenly um, be uh, producing all these extra um, uh, certification, and funnily enough, you know, a lot of the vet services in the, in, on the EU side, they're government run. So getting people to work at weekends, at five o'clock in the morning, when every hour counts, particularly on perishable products, I think is a real source of concern to people like the British Meat Processors Association. Talking to their members on the continent, the Chilled Foods Association. Um, no one knows quite how it's going to play out. Least of all the British government. Um, but I think there's lots to go wrong.
0: And Jill, given what Peter's just outlined, it sounds quite politically rave, perhaps even quite risky to sign up to these, these checks being implemented now. So so why are we doing it?
2: Uh, that's the interesting question. Um, just before Christmas, a colleague and I were asked to predict whether the UK would finally, finally, finally go ahead with this. And we thought that the UK would take the easy way out and postpone them and decide that this wasn't something they wanted to do in election year. Uh, they did, after all, postpone them when they were last year to come in in October because they were worried about the potential additions to costs. And I think one of the big problems for the government is that they undoubtedly add costs. They could lead to shortages in some areas. Peter's done a terrific job in documenting, you know, will you be able to get tulips on Valentine's Day or will, you know, seedlings for Wimbledon or wither in some port, in April when they're all due to come across, to go into our greenhouses and things like that. So... Um- So I think there's sort of worries. But uh, the other worry I'd have via the government is uh, that anything will be blamed on Brexit, even if it's not to do with Brexit. And at the moment, continental Europe is not in a great state with its farmers. We've had big blockades in France. We've had sort of big protests in Germany. So there are quite a lot of things that could be disrupting trade anyway. And we saw last year, without these checks coming in, sort of shortages emerging uh, as there was disruptions through weather, I think, in southern Spain. And I think one of the big risks for the government, I would think, is any time I don't see my preferred good on a shelf or I see a price rise, I might just label that a Brexit impact, uh, even if it actually would have happened anyway. Um, So I'm slightly surprised the government went ahead. Of course, some people in government don't think the they should have done. Jacob Rees-Mogg always argued that there was no reason to inflict these sorts of costs on our consumers. Uh, Lord Frost, I think, had a similar view that we shouldn't be trying to mimic the EU. But in the long run, the UK couldn't really justify as a good citizen the WTO running a regime where we had no checks on goods coming in from the EU just for historical reasons. But we were checking goods coming in from the rest of the world, and there were some genuine concerns from UK agencies about biosecurity risks, sort of you know, plant and animal health diseases. Lots of mentions. Of African swine fever potentially coming in through unchecked goods. So, as Peter says, even when you get checking, it's not going to be huge numbers um, being checked at the ports. And we saw mm-hmm. when we were in the EU that that didn't stop things like the horse meat scandal. So, I think it's a brave decision to go ahead. Um, the real risk for the government is that businesses that didn't bother to prepare have seen that decision justified uh, for the last few years. We were supposed to be bringing these in in 2021, after all. Uh, So they've seen that decision justified. So they may all be a bit shocked. And I think some of the uh, comments peter has been reporting from shocked trade associations suggest that, they thought we were crying wolf again by saying we were going to go ahead. And now they're extremely surprised. It'll be interesting to see whether they really do go ahead with the April and October ones if there are problems emerging from this sort of you know first wave, which light a touch. And there is a sort of Europe-wide vet crisis, which is quite interesting, which is that there just isn't the capacity in the VET market really to supply enough people to do the certification on either side of the border. We've had to come up with some innovative solutions to that uh, over this side, but that may now crunch on the EU side. And the problem for the UK is while many of our suppliers might think for uh, something that's a very big export market for our agri-food produce, it's worth investing in the processes, uh, in the rest of the EU, they might just decide that the UK is a market too far and withdraw from it.
0: Peter, Jill's talked about the fact that it's a general election year. You know These checks could have uh, big implications, downsides for consumers, for businesses. Do you think that this is going to mean Brexit ends up being more of a question on the doorstep this year uh, during the general election than it might have been?
1: I'm not sure about that. As Jill says, there's a tendency to blame everything on Brexit, if you're so minded. Um, The the, the difficulty for the government is here, is that um, their view is that they can manage this, any disruption, by essentially soft-peddling the checks and the requirement. But what that misses is the fact that actually it's really incumbent on, and what we saw in 2021, incumbent on people right back at the warehouse playing the game. And so what you might see is that this has a greater chilling effect than they were anticipating. So we're we're very reliant on the EU for our pork. Um, There are other wrinkles, like are the export health certificates properly translated in a way that certain vets, particularly from Germany, are prepared to sign. Some apparently don't even have a box for sugared liquid eggs, which is what you need to make tomato ketchup. So you can see a world where, you know, bacon butty shortage uh, rocks UK election campaign. I think that's pretty unlikely, to be honest. I suspect that um, the bigger issue that will actually land on voters, if it happens, is the introduction of biometric border checks uh, in October. You know, shortages on the supermarket shelves will just add to the general sense among the public that the cost of living crisis is through the roof and the country's being run very badly. uh, And that, you know, will play into a, a kind of wider sense of disgruntlement, which the Tories are currently fighting. Will it really drag Brexit back into the headlines? I suspect not, except for those people who want it dragged back in.
0: And Peter, your book is called uh, What Went Wrong With Brexit. Could it could it have gone better? Will things get better?
1: Do you know, I think things will get better, actually. What you're seeing slowly is gravity taking its course. You're seeing Northern Ireland, you know, reaching a kind of grudging uh, uh, workaround. Um, I think actually we did. I sort of slightly disagree with Jill. I think we did. We're going to have to introduce a border at some point. We need to level the playing field uh, with the European Union. The Labour Party have said if they win that they're going to do a veterinary deal. I think they'll also look to link our carbon markets probably, because what people haven't fully internalised is that Brexit is an ongoing structural piece of friction. It doesn't go away. If you look at the surveys of all the trade groups, the British Chambers of Commerce, Make UK, you really don't see. Uh, manufacturers and traders finding it any easier, and that's because it hasn't got any easier. And I think there are things that the Labour Party can do and will look to do, a youth mobility deal to get our young people back uh, working in each other's cities more easily, um, linking carbon markets, a veterinary deal, all of which will not at all solve the problem and make it go away, but will start to shave away some of the frictions that we've seen um, over the last Uh, uh, four or five years. And I think the last thing they can also do is start to build a much uh, uh, more cogent framework for dealing with what I call Brexit 2.0, these ongoing EU regulations on AI, on plastic packaging, on supply chain due diligence that fundamentally pose questions about how the UK is going to respond and react to those regulations, because it matters not just for UK companies feeding into EU supply chains, but also for smaller companies in the UK that don't export but work for companies that do export. They're going to need carbon attestations for how much carbon is embedded in their products. All this stuff adds up to friction. And I think that's the danger, lastly, for the UK with the new border. Yes, you've got to level the playing field, but it will add to the sense in the EU single market that dealing with the UK is a hassle. And all things being equal, it's just easier to buy something from Pedro in Barcelona than Peter in Brighton, and. You know, that is going to be the constant battle. And even if Labour do all the things I mentioned, it it still doesn't actually fundamentally alter that fact.
2: Uh, Can I just add, I do think the UK had to do a border eventually. I'm just slightly surprised they've actually gone ahead in election year. But I do think that where Peter is right is that it actually helps if you want leverage to get some of these deals. One of the problems that we've seen in the way we've managed Brexit is the UK for pragmatic capacity reasons or whatever has actually done things like recognize EU markings, recognize EU authorizations, whereas we've been, you know, we've been full third country status vis-a-vis the EU. Uh, and the border was one of those examples of, of making an asymmetric deal even more asymmetric in the way both sides were implementing it. If you want down the line to negotiate easements, you need to have some benefit for the other side. And actually, by introducing those checks and having squawks from the sort of people that Peter's been talking to on the continent, you have to hope that they want to go on trading with the UK or regret losing the UK as a market because that potentially opens the way For both sides to agree, it's in their mutual interest to streamline those processes, and that sort of opens the way to some of the things that Peter's potentially mentioning might be on the post-election agenda. Tim, you used to be a member of the Brexit team uh, at IFG. Is this uh, is this chat giving you
0: flashbacks?
3: Absolutely. It's. I mean, I think it's Peter's point is key, right? It's. It was always a process, never an event. You know, Brexit is kind of. It's just the the context of government now for for however long. I was talking to someone yesterday who's saying. Uh, they never want to see a referendum in their life again. Although maybe if we were to rejoin, then there would have to be one then. But we, you know, we're so far away from that. But everything that the government does is, and whichever party comes in after the election, you know, this is going to be part of the context that they're operating in. Um, I think it's amazing how sort of so much has changed since i was working on this but also nothing has changed you know we are still talking about arrangements in northern ireland we're still talking about nigb trade we're still talking about uh friction at the border and, and all the rest of it so yeah i mean it, it is astonishing how it sort of dominated political life for so long and then it's kind of gone away but it's actually it's still very much um, part of business as usual now
0: Okay, let's end by looking at a favourite topic of the IFG, and that's government transparency, because this week we've put out a new paper which examines the pros, the cons of governments being more open with their data. And joining us now is the paper's lead author, Sachin Tavur. Hi, Sachin. Hiya. First up, how transparent is government at the moment?
4: The government has made some commitments towards transparency, particularly in July last year, and they followed that through in December with its National Action Plan on Open Government, which made a couple of commitments around anti-corruption, open contracting and aid transparency. But apart from that, the picture's a little bit bleak. So we've seen kind of secrecy around ministers' use of WhatsApp and particularly with the COVID inquiry, the things that are coming out around pandemic procurement. It's not necessarily painting the best picture for the government.
0: So overall, things are getting worse on transparency
4: rather than better? Just a little. So David Cameron came in in 2010 saying that he wanted his government to be one of the most open and transparent in the world. I don't think we're seeing that kind of rhetoric now. And certainly, even in the day to day of government, below that rhetoric, we're not seeing quite the same thing. So, there's a growing number of freedom of information requests that are being rejected. So, I, did, I think the last time that a majority of FOI requests were, were grounded in for was about 2015, something like that. And we've slipped down the OECD's data rankings as well uh, on open data. So, certainly a downward trend.
0: Um, so if you're, you're a minister in government, you're an official in government, is it the case that being more transparent isn't always that attractive?
4: There's definitely a focus on the political damage that can happen to ministers. There's concern that if you put information out there, then it'll be used as a, as a stick to beat you with. Um, and there's also concerns for officials as well, that this is a, a burden for them to put information out there and takes up time and effort. And that's particularly a problem because... Those burdens don't accrue in the same place as benefits that the a kind of civil servant who's collating lots of data together won't necessarily see the benefits from that scrutiny that will drive performance in
1: government yeah
0: and Tim, Tony Blair famously isn't a, a big fan of uh, FOIs these days. Have you got much sympathy for him?
3: Yeah. I, I, so you're talking about, you know, he he's the prime minister who oversaw the Freedom of Information Act, but he has criticised it afterwards saying, you know, it, it basically just gave, as Sachin said, a, a stick to beat the government with. And I think, a lot of opposition leaders can be quite critical of government, or oppositions in general can be quite critical of government. Cameron was very critical of the new Labour government. Obviously, a big scandal towards the end of their period in government was the expenses uh, row, which which uh, you know destroyed a lot of trust in politicians in general. And Cameron kind of wanted to show that his government would be better and 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 improve on that thing that issue. Um, nowadays, since Partygate, for the last couple of years, this government has faced an awful lot of scandals, and Angela Rayner, in particular, as deputy leader of the Labour Party has been very critical of the government and has committed Labour to doing a lot more on transparency and and ethical standards more generally. Uh, So I think it's very easy for people to want to improve it when they're outside government. And then because of the issues that Sachin was talking about in terms of the kind of burdens and the embarrassment that it can provoke, uh, ministers perhaps row back from it a little bit when they're actually in office.
0: And tell us a bit more about the upsides, because I think one of the arguments we're making in the paper is actually, even though it can be difficult, there are real upsides, um, both on the political side and on the official side
3: to transparency. Absolutely. I think... If, if you want to get things done in government, transparency can help you doing that. So one of the things that we talked about is uh, improving value for money, saving money, because if you are, government is spending hundreds of billions of pounds every year, they do a lot of that through public procurement. If they can be open about that procurement, if they can put those contracts properly out to tender, if they can show people what it is that they're trying to buy, that drives up competition, drives down prices, saves money. Uh, We also looked at increasing or improving performance of public services. So we looked at an example in the environmental space, all of the various bodies that sit under the Department for Environment, DEFRA, a few years ago, they worked together to publish lots of data, which meant that they could see each other's data much more easily, but also outside organisations could see data. So that meant that people were better able to predict flood uh, flooding risks in certain areas, which meant uh, insurance premiums came down, but also meant that people were able to ensure that services were in place for when flooding was likely to happen, so that people who were affected by that could be supported more easily. So these are just some ways, you know, it's not just about kind of catching people out and finding out who's been lobbying who. It's about opening up the work of government more generally so that people can, can see the information and make better decisions and deliver better services.
0: We've already mentioned the COVID inquiry. Jill, uh, have some of the recent hearings in the COVID inquiry suggested that the SNP have an even bigger problem with transparency than the uh, than the UK government?
2: Well, this is probably more for Tim than for me. Um, Peter may have views. Um, I think the SNP government sort of emerged as perhaps less different from the UK government than it thought. And clearly it seems to have had an even more restrictive policy on maintaining its WhatsApp records uh, and uh, and didn't even seem to minute some critical meetings. So some of its processes look very dubious. I mean, I think there's some quite interesting things Emerging about the way in which the Scottish, gov- the Scottish government works, about the centralisation. It doesn't look quite so dysfunctional a centre with so much backstabbing as the uh, UK government. But the finance secretary, Kate Forbes, made the point that she wasn't invited to some of the critical meetings. She wasn't there and she said she thought it's because she wasn't invited to them. And there does seem to be uh, a lot of things where an awful lot of uh, decisions were just made by the first minister and her closest aides, so it, it's showing quite an interesting light in in how that all works. But yeah, you know, I think Tim and Sachin are right: is that transpa- more generally that transparency seems like an absolute pain in the neck and a burden, but actually being more transparent, giving reasons for your answer taking the bother to explain why you're doing things is actually a really important and valuable discipline that helps you avoid things that blow up in your face later. Because if you can't explain them at the time, then you're likely to run into difficulties uh, later on with justifying why you took the actions you did. So I think it's very welcome to be pushing
0: further on it. And Peter, as a journalist, how accessible is the data that you want to uh, to get your hands on?
1: well you know there is actually amazing i started journalism in 1995 and funny enough i deal with younger colleagues who have a whole world of journalism that just didn't exist um when I was that age, you know, big data sets, some of them commercial, some of them government that are there that allow you to do really interesting things. Uh, Look at, you know, for example, we're going to do a big audit at the Financial Times about levelling up. There are really rich data sets that you could look at, um, you know, whether it's child poverty, whether it's areas left behind. So I think there is pretty good access to data. My my beef with the government in terms of transparency is more on the side of the, the communication side. I think, There's an awful lot of spin and and, uh, deception that's crept into what used to be fairly straightforward uh, communications. And I I find that um, incredibly corrosive. Uh, uh, You know, ministers, I don't know, just simple things like putting out trade numbers, you know, not adjusted for inflation. That's obviously misleading. We had a statement from the Home Office the other day just after the statistics watchdog had ticked off the government for claiming that it had fixed backlogs when it uh, hadn't. Uh, you know, that said, we have fixed the backlogs. Well, as a journalist, I'm not quite sure what you do with that. Um, Jill will know much more about this than I have. But but I used to believe that the kind of background you used to get from government departments, aside from the spin you'd get from SPADS, was pretty well straight dealing. And it isn't anymore. And I think, you know, that is corroding the relationship between media and government. uh, And somebody needs to take a serious look at it.
2: I think it would be really interesting. I absolutely agree with Peter that some of the stuff that comes out from official government accounts and things now is really totally inappropriate to be coming from the official government machine as opposed to, you know, badge to whatever party you want. And I think it'd be really good if somebody wants to get a grip and remind people of some of the obligations under the civil service code that they're all supposed to be operating under and uh, try and reassert some of those standards i know that when you know new labor came in in 1997 they thought government press operations hands up i was uh, head of treasury communications at the time were incredibly naive and um, you know just sort of Bit clueless, but we did honestly think that you know we were there to actually provide facts and information rather than just be purveyors of spin. Didn't stop us putting out you know wacky lines as long as a minister would agree to put them in a quote. Um, but the underlying facts we would not be as dodgy with, as it seems, standards have deteriorated uh, hugely uh, over the last couple of decades. So Sachin,
0: we've heard from both Peter and Jill uh, where things are are getting worse, um, but we're making the case for why transparency is important. Are you optimistic that things are going to get better?
4: I, I am optimistic. I think we've seen from the COVID inquiry the value that transparency can have when you can see what's happening in government and how it's working, that kind of scrutiny and accountability clearly has its benefits. I think government itself is recognising things more and more. So last year's Procurement Act, a lot of it hinges on the fact that putting information out there is good for, uh, you know, letting small and medium businesses make their bids to government and understand, uh, you know, what government's looking for. And I also think that as more decisions in government are made based on machine learning and based on algorithms and things like that, government can see the benefits of collecting data that's good quality and being able to work with other people and other businesses and organisations to make better decisions. Brilliant. Thank you.
0: Okay, I think that's all we've got time for uh, this week. So that's the end of the podcast. Thank you to Jill Rutter, Tim Durrant, Sachin Sava, and especially to Peter Foster. Thank you very much for joining us, Peter. And thank you to all of you for listening to this episode. You can find all of our podcasts and The Expert Factor, our new podcast with the IFS and UK Energy Change in Europe at ACAST, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Do subscribe and please leave us a review. Remember to head to our website for all our work, including Sachin and Tim's report on government transparency, Jill's latest take on Brexit, and our assessment of the Northern Ireland deal. And while you're there, do sign up for our event with Therese Coffey, the former Health Secretary, Environment Secretary, and Deputy Prime Minister. She is going to be in conversation with Tim. Lots to discuss. Have a great weekend, everyone.